Warning, this episode contains content that may be disturbing to some viewers. Viewer discretion is advised. Looks can be incredibly deceiving. This week we study the ongoing case of the Granny Ripper. Let's open the serial killer file. were in for quite a surprise when they were called to an apartment building in St. Petersburg, Russia. On July 27, 2015, a couple within the apartment vicinity were going out for a casual stroll with their dog when a large plastic bag caught the attention of the dog. Sniffing and trying to bury its nose into the bag, the couple opened the garbage bag to unravel the disturbing sight of a headless and limbless butchered torso. Surveillance cameras surrounding the apartment building captured footage of an elderly woman disposing a large saucepan outside, as well as security footage of a woman dragging a large garbage bag to the side of the building just two nights prior to the gruesome discovery. Attention grew around the area and police were quickly able to identify the woman as 68-year-old Tamara Samsonov, who was living in the complex over the last 40 years with her husband. Though the discovery came as a surprise to many, investigators were about to discover more than they ever bargained for. At this point, the police had no choice but to place the senior into custody for suspicion of murder. Upon entering Tamara's apartment, investigators discovered blood splattered around the kitchen and bathroom as well as a large kitchen knife that showed signs of being a murder weapon. Police then looked into her personal belongings in her bedroom and discovered a vital piece of evidence that would give them a major break into previous murder investigations. A diary sitting on a stand beside books on astrology and black magic had written entries that gave details descriptions on not one murder, but multiple cannibalistic slayings dating back 20 years prior. Each entry was also written in fluent Russian, German, and English, something that confused police. A journal entry from 2003 stated, I killed my tenant Volodya, cut him to pieces in the bathroom with a knife, and put the pieces of his body in plastic bags and threw them away in different parts of the Fruzensky district. Coincidentally, the entry matched the murder case belonging to a 44-year-old man whose torso was discovered in the district in 2003. The case went cold when police failed to bring up any leads on his killer. Police noted a unique tattoo on the body of the man that was also brought up in Tamara's journal entry. Pages from her black magic books were also missing and were discovered to be the exact spell pages that were left with the 44-year-old's discarded remains. Dark rituals composed of black magic were indicated to be a source in each of her murders. Seeing as all leads irrefutably pointed to her, Tamara had no problem confessing to multiple murders. While held in custody, Tamara confessed to police that the remains belonged to 79-year-old Valentina Ulanova, an elderly woman who was being taken care of by Tamara just before her death. 
The two ended up getting into an argument over dishes, and within minutes after their conflict, Tamara drugged Valentina with sleeping pills and hacked her to pieces while she was still alive. She then decapitated the body and removed the lungs, placing additional limbs into plastic bags. Police also discovered missing limbs near a pond not too far from the apartment building. Cannibalism was never ruled out as investigators found the saucepan Tamara had tossed. It was believed to have cooked the head and lungs of Valentina. It's also speculated that she confessed to over 21 additional murders while living in the apartment. However, the exact number of victims is not certain at this time. Neighbors had questioned where her husband was after she reported him missing in 2005. He has since been legally declared dead, and his whereabouts are still unknown to this day. During her court hearing, Tamara was very calm and collected while she confessed her brutal murders. She was so comfortable that she even blew a kiss to the reporters in the courtroom. Tamara pled guilty, telling the judge that she deserved the punishment she was going to receive. Believing she should spend her final years in prison, Tamara told the jury that Valentina was in fact her final kill, the one to close the chapter for her life as a serial killer. Tamara is currently in prison for the murders. However, the trial persists as police investigate cold cases dating back two decades. She is dubbed the Granny Ripper and Granny Ball Lecter in Western countries and is titled Baba Yaga in Russian news outlets, a horrifying supernatural old woman from Slavic folklore. On the outside, Nanny Doss appeared to be a very kind-hearted neighbor, wife, and mother, but on the inside lurked something else entirely. This week, we discuss the giggling nanny. Let's open the serial killer file. Nancy Hazel was born on November 4th, 1905 to an underprivileged family in Alabama. Brought up with one brother and three sisters, Nanny and her siblings lacked a proper education. With an over-controlling father, all the children were forced to work long hours on the family farm and were forbidden to engage in healthy social lives. Nanny experienced an accident at the age of seven when she hit her head against a metal bar while riding a train with her family. She would later blame the accident for her depression, severe headaches, and daily blackouts while growing up. Nanny grew up to resent her father. As a teenager, Nanny and her sisters were restricted from ever wearing makeup and clothing that remotely made them appear attractive in order to limit the girls' interaction with boys. Nanny was 16 years old when she married her first husband, Charlie Braggs, a man that worked at the same factory as her. The two had dated four short months before tying the knot under the approval of her father. The newlywed couple never got to experience a honeymoon phase in their marriage, however. Charlie had no family and was raised by a mother who never married either. Because Charlie was all his mother had, he insisted that his mother lived with them. Living in a controlled environment, Nanny was subjected to her mother-in-law's rules and went on to give birth to four daughters between 1923 and 1927. Young and living in an unhappy marriage, Nanny began taking up heavy drinking and smoking in order to get through her days. It wasn't long before the marriage hit its lowest point. Raising four children, Nanny rarely saw Charlie after he began cheating on her. Things only got worse when in early 1927, two of their daughters unexpectedly died from suspected food poisoning. 
The grieving process seemed to be cut short when Nanny received her daughter's life insurance money. Charlie accused Nanny of poisoning the girls and fled with their firstborn daughter, leaving behind their newborn in Nanny's care. After the death of her mother-in-law, the couple divorced in 1928. Nanny took custody over the remaining two daughters after Charlie stated that he feared his wife and refused to eat her food whenever she was in a sour mood. Fallen back on a failed marriage and with two children to support, Nanny turned to romance novels and began to seek out a new partner. After the divorce, Nanny moved to Anniston, Alabama with her kids. Continuing to write for the magazine, Nanny caught the eye of 23-year-old Robert Frank Harrelson. The two began exchanging romantic poetry and gifts to each other until marrying in 1929. High hopes for a new start at raising a family didn't last very long when Nanny moved the girls to Jacksonville, only to discover that her new husband was an alcoholic with a history of criminal assault charges. Despite his past records, the couple were together for 16 years, much longer than her previous. Marriage. In 1943, Nanny's oldest daughter, Melvina, gave birth to her first son, Robert Lee Haynes, and a second child in 1947. Exhausted from her long hours in labor, Melvina thought she was delusional when she witnessed her mother sticking a hat pin into the head of her newborn and killing the child. Doctors apologized and were unable to confirm the cause of death, believing it could have possibly been birth complications. A few months later, Nanny was taking care of her infant grandson when he unexpectedly died of asphyxiation. The sudden death of the child left the family in a state of shock and grief while Nanny went on to collect $500 of life insurance that she had taken out on Robert just two months prior. After a drunken night at a local bar in 1945, Frank returned home demanding sex from his wife, who declined. Frank became violent and Nanny finally submitted. Nanny insisted that Frank raped her that night, which was the last straw for her. Distraught and angry, Nanny sought revenge the next day by discreetly placing rat poison into Frank's liquor jar, ultimately watching her husband die a slow and painful death that same evening. Nanny was content with killing off as many loved ones as she could and would continue to collect money from their deaths. It didn't take very long for Nanny to move on. Once again, she was able to easily find another suitable man named Arlie Lanning through magazine dating columns while moving to Lexington, North Carolina. After three days, the couple married. However, this was no longer a motive to find happiness for Nanny. Just like her previous husbands, Arlie was known to be a cheater and alcoholic who took advantage of women. For undisclosed periods of time, Nanny would sneak out of town and return in an optimistic state tending to her household duties while her husband sought love from other women. It was during her third marriage when she came to the harsh realization that she would never be able to find the perfect man suitable for someone like herself. In 1950, Arlie suddenly died of heart failure after experiencing flu-like symptoms. Doctors believed his death had been attributed to his heavy drinking, taking Nanny off of everyone's radar. The morning after Arlie's death, his property was burned to the ground. Nanny knew that Arlie's sister would collect the property after his death and did everything she could to stop that from ever happening. Just before leaving town, Nanny went on to visit her mother-in-law, who had also unexpectedly died in her sleep that same evening. In 1952, Nanny was now a 47-year-old woman and aging fast. Realizing she was losing her look, she began searching for older men through a dating agency called the Diamond Circle Club. It was from there she was able to find her fourth husband, Richard L. Morton. Realizing that he was yet another womanizer, Nanny began plotting her kill until her plans were put to a sudden stop when her elderly mother, decided to move in. Unable to kill without getting caught, she took extra precautions, but eventually had no choice but to poison her own mother. Three months following her mother's death, Richard was killed just before Nanny made her final stop to Tulsa, Oklahoma. 
Desperate for money, Nanny loved the thrill of the kill. However, that thrill soon caught up with her. In June of 1953, Nanny met and married Samuel Doss, a conservative and religious man that highly disapproved of Nanny's romance novels. A few months into the marriage, Samuel was diagnosed by doctors with a severe digestive tract infection after eating Nanny's food. In desperation to collect the two life insurance policies she had taken out on him, Nanny had poisoned Samuel, and he died as a result. Samuel's sudden death made doctors suspicious. In October of 1954, Nanny was apprehended for the murder of her husband after an autopsy concluded that Samuel had ingested an alarming amount of arsenic. On May 17, 1955, Nanny pled guilty for the 11 murders she committed from the 1920s to 1954. Nanny confessed to all of her murders in a delighted manner, appearing to have no remorse for the murders of her infant grandson, her mother, four husbands, and previous mother-in-laws. The state did not pursue the death penalty and sentenced Nanny to life in prison, and she went there giggling. Nanny Doss died of leukemia in the hospital ward of the Oklahoma State Penitentiary on June 2nd, 1965, at the age of 59. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings, from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. We all deserve a second chance in life for our small indiscretions or when we show real change in ourselves. But some people just shouldn't be given that chance. This week we discuss Jack Unterweger, the Vienna Strangler. Let's open the serial killer file. Johannes Jack Unterweger was born August 16, 1950, in the province of Styria, Austria, to a single mother, Theresa Unterweger. Theresa left home in her late teens to work as a barmaid and waitress, and was a petty criminal, committing theft and fraud, but was also, purportedly, a prostitute. She met an American soldier in Trieste, Italy, and became pregnant soon after. For much of her pregnancy, she was jailed for fraud, but was released and returned to Graz, Austria, to give birth to Jack. Jack spent much of his childhood in the care of his maternal grandfather after his mother was arrested in 1953. He claimed they lived in poverty, and his grandfather was an abusive alcoholic who introduced him to drinking at a very young age. Surrounded by the seedy underbelly of Austrian society, he was raised around prostitutes and pimps, eventually adopting the lifestyle, acting as a pimp to a local prostitute. Likely due to the abandonment by his mother, he developed a hatred of women and a penchant for violence. Jack assaulted a prostitute at the age of 16 and was arrested, and later accumulated over 16 more convictions into early childhood, mainly for petty crime and sexual assault. But his first murder, committed when he was 24 years old, set the precedent 
for what was to come. In 1974, Jack was in a relationship with a prostitute, Barbara Scholz, and while out driving, he spotted a friend of hers, an 18-year-old German woman named Margaret Schaefer. According to testimony by Barbara, the pair picked her up after robbing Margaret's parents' house and drove her to an isolated location. When she refused to have sex with him, he struck her in the head and strangled her to death with the strap of her own bra abandoning her body in the woods. Jack confessed to seeing his mother's face in Margaret's and said he simply snapped. He was arrested and convicted for the crime in 1976 and was sentenced to life in prison. The forensic psychologist who examined him at his trial declared him a sexually sadistic psychopath with narcissistic and histrionic tendencies and believed he was a severe danger to society. However, in prison, Jack flourished. He had been illiterate prior to his incarceration and taught himself to read and write and with his new skills wrote children's books, poetry, and a best-selling autobiography titled Purgatory or the Trip to Jail, Report of a Guilty Man in 1983. His accomplishments and good behavior earned him the esteem of the literary community in Austria, who saw him as a reformed man and sought to have him pardoned in 1985. Though he was required to serve the 15-year minimum of his sentence, he continued to write and gain more favor in the Austrian public, and he was finally paroled on May 23, 1990. Jack became a media celebrity, appearing on television shows, working for magazines, and reporting for public broadcaster ORF, working on crime stories. Outwardly, he maintained the appearance of a 40-year-old wealthy, intellectual bachelor surrounded by beautiful young women. But little did the public know that beneath the surface lay a monster in hiding. Bodies of prostitutes began turning up in Vienna shortly after Jack's release. On September 15, 1990, the body of 30-year-old Blanka Bakova was found by Vltava River in Prague, Czechoslovakia. She was nude except for her wedding ring and socks. A few weeks after Blanka's body was found, 39-year-old Brunhilde Masser, a well-known prostitute in the area, was reported missing. In December, Heidi Marie Hammerer, a local prostitute, went missing, and her body was found near Graz on New Year's Eve. Five days later, the decomposing body of Brunhilde Masser was found near Bregenz, Austria. All three women were poorly concealed by leaves and branches, partially nude, and were strangled using an intricate slipknot. Police faced difficulty in handling the cases. Prostitution was legal in Austria. No witnesses came forward and little physical evidence could be tied to a particular person. The only clues were several unidentifiable red fibers found on Heidi Marie's clothing. On March 7, 1991, another prostitute by the name of Elfrida Schrempf disappeared from the same area as Brunhilde. On October 5th that same year, her skeletal remains were found, convincing the authorities that they had a serial killer on the loose. Within the span of a month, four more prostitutes would disappear from Penzing, Vienna. As for Jack Unterweger, his career was only growing. 
In June of 1991, Jack flew to Los Angeles, California to write for an Austrian magazine about the differences in attitude towards prostitution between the United States and Austria. There, he participated in ride-alongs with police under the guise of research, all while committing more crimes. The bodies of 21-year-old Shannon Exley, 33-year-old Irene Rodriguez, and 26-year-old Sherry Long were found in the area within the span of a month. All three women were involved in prostitution and had been beaten, sexually assaulted, and strangled with a piece of their clothing, which had knots identical to the ones used in the Austrian murders. Jack was not on the police's radar until 70-year-old retired investigator August Schenner noted the similarities between Jack's first homicide and the recent local killings. Police now had to investigate a man who, by all appearances, was a well-adjusted former criminal-turned-celebrity writer. Looking through his credit card and car rental records, police linked Jack to the victims at the time each disappeared. Witnesses reported seeing a man wearing a leather jacket and red scarf with two of the victims just before they went missing. After obtaining warrants, police searched Jack's apartment in Vienna and his car and found the red scarf that matched the fibers found on Heidi Marie Hammerer. DNA evidence connected him to the murder of Blanca Bokova and the Los Angeles murders. Upon being tipped off by friends, Jack and his 18-year-old girlfriend Bianca Mrock fled Austria across Europe, traveling to Canada and entering the United States. He contacted the press in Austria and played the victim, accusing police of framing him for their lack of suspects, but that didn't stop authorities from hunting him down. Jack and Bianca were apprehended by U.S. Marshals on February 27, 1992, while collecting money from a Western Union in Miami, Florida. Jack chose not to fight extradition to Austria because facing murder charges in California meant facing the death penalty. He returned to Austria four months later, and not long after, the bodies of four prostitutes turned up. Sabine Moitzi was found in a wooded area just outside of Vienna on May 20th, 1992, followed by the body of Karen Aroglu three days later. The remains of Sylvia Zagler and Regina Prem were never found, but it is believed Jack killed them in April of 1991 and dumped their bodies near Graz. In June 1994, in the trial of the century, as it was called, Jack was tried for 11 counts of murder. Throughout the proceedings, he attempted to manipulate and charm the jury into buying his innocence, but he was very much unsuccessful. He was found guilty for nine counts of murder on June 28, 1994, and was sentenced to life in prison. The next night, Jack hanged himself in his prison cell, where he died. In total, Jack Unterweger was attributed to the deaths of 12 women, including that of Marcia Horvath, whom he was accused of killing but never tried for. Because Jack had not exhausted his appeals, Austrian law does not sustain his conviction after his death, so the law may technically consider him innocent, but his infamous legacy as a serial killer proves otherwise. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow the Seriously Strange podcast so you don't miss what we've got in store for you. Watch the shadows and stay alive out there. Be sure to follow my Facebook fan page, and I'll see you next time.
Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says support the show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way because we can't do this without our listeners' support. If you decide to contribute, it's tremendously appreciated and we thank you so much. We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care and enjoy your next episode.